Welcome. Okay, we are back in the book of Genesis. We took a couple weeks off this series to focus on the Easter season, but we're back into Genesis chapter 3 today. You can open up your Bibles or get your devices ready uh, as we move toward that today. But we've been looking at Genesis from this perspective, that Genesis is a story. Daryl Johnson calls it the story of all stories, that this is the story that makes sense of every other story in the world. Are you wondering why the world is the way it is? Well, Genesis helps make sense of it. Are you wondering why humans act in a certain way? Genesis helps make sense of that. Are you wondering what the point of all of this is? Genesis helps make sense of that. Genesis gives us, as human beings, our origin story, where we came from, what happened to us. That, that tells us something about who we are, and so it also gives us our identity, who we are, what we were made to be and to do, but it also tells us about our future. It points toward our destiny, where we are going and where we belong in God's kingdom. So it's this incredible story that shows us where we come from, where we are, where we're going, and makes sense of what's going on in the world around us. And so, so far in the first couple chapters, we've learned that there's a God who created the heavens and the earth. What was formless and empty is now formed and filled. We've learned that creation was made on purpose, for a purpose. You and I are not a cosmic accident. We were made with meaning and intention. We were also made as image bearers of the divine. We are made in God's image, which gives us value and dignity and purpose in this world. We're representatives of God and his vice regents and rulers in his stead on this planet. We're also made to live in harmonious relationship with God, relationship with each other, relationship with the rest of creation, and even to have a good relationship with our own selves. And so up to this point in the story, everything is going great. God created an incredible universe, a beautiful world for us to live on. We get to live in this amazing garden that's fruitful, and we get to walk around eating fruit naked in the garden all day like a summer in the Okanagan. It's incredible. It's the most beautiful thing ever. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. Everything could go wrong. And that's the part of the story we get into today. I remember when I was in elementary school, um, one of the classes in our school, they did this art project where they took just like a, an eight and a half by 11 piece of cardboard, and then they did Play-Doh art on top of it. So it was kind of like a 3D um, art they did. And one student just made this incredible image uh, under the sea. There was seaweed, and there was octopus, and there was, there was uh, uh, like sharks, and it was amazing. And they showed it to the whole school because the student was just very talented artistically. They hung it up outside the principal's office. It looked incredible. And then we all came back to school the next day, and someone had taken some sort of sharp item and scratched it all up. And it was just completely this beautiful piece of art done with creativity and love and intent was ruined because someone snuck in and with malicious intent destroyed it. And it reminded me, this story that we're about to get into reminded me of that beautiful piece of art that was marred and scarred by someone who just wanted to destroy it. We're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, and I'm going to read it in chunks and have some commentary as well at the end. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, 
Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? So a snake begins to talk to Eve. Eve's not surprised that an animal is talking. Maybe in this time in history, animals could talk. Maybe it's kind of like the kingdom of Narnia. I'm not sure. But maybe just this one could talk and it didn't bother Eve too much. Or maybe there's just something more going on here. The text doesn't tell us, but eventually the scriptures, as you move forward, point back to this moment and identify this creature, not just as any creature, but, but there's, there's someone else, another will, another intent kind of taking over this creature in this moment. The serpent becomes the symbol of evil and the symbol of our great adversary, Satan. Satan in the book of Revelation is called that ancient serpent. He is the great accuser of humankind. And he in this moment, through the serpent, is talking to Eve. He comes to ask Eve a question. The question seems innocent enough, but it's full of venom. The serpent is trying to get Eve to question God's goodness. And he's twisting God's word to create distrust. Did God really say? God couldn't have said, you're not allowed to eat any of this fruit, this beautiful lush garden. You're not allowed to eat any of it. That doesn't seem fair. Why would he do that? Maybe he's holding back from you. Remember, Adam and Eve were given a special position in the order of creation. They were the only creatures that were called image bearers. They bore the image of the divine. They were like God more than any other creature. And their responsibility was to rule over creation, including the beasts of the field like this serpent. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the, over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Here's one of those animals scurrying along the ground, a beast of the field, an animal that Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over, making a play, trying to get the human to question God's goodness as a way possibly to improve its own status in the created order. Here's how Eve responds to the question. Verse 2. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So Eve responds. Some people think Eve shouldn't have said anything. I'm not so sure that's true. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness after his baptism, which very much parallels this story, Jesus did respond verbally to Satan. He quoted God's word in each situation. Now, Eve wasn't wrong in saying something. It's just that she said too much. She quoted God, which is good. Jesus quoted the scriptures when he was dealing with temptation. It's the best weapon we have in times of temptation. But Eve added to what God said. She said, God told us you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. But what did God actually say? Chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. The Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely, pardon me, you may freely eat the fruit from every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Eve added, and if we touch it. So she added to God's word. 
Eve was the first legalist in history. She knew what the rule was, and she added an extra rule in order to make sure that she wouldn't break the rule. And you know what? We do that. We do that all the time. We, we read God's word. We know what he asks for us. And so to protect us from temptation, we add layers of rules on top of it to make sure that we don't get tempted. And you know what? That's not always a terrible idea, especially depending on whether or not you have a specific weakness in one thing or another. But what is wrong is when we actually take our human-made rules and elevate them to the level of God's word. And Eve said he told us not to eat it and he told us not to touch it. But he didn't. There was actually a group of Pharisees back in the day who they looked at the rule like, okay, you're not supposed to commit adultery and you're not supposed to lust. And so what? how do you lust? Well, you lust when you look at a woman and you start to think sexual thoughts about her. So in order to avoid the temptation to lust, we're not even going to look at women. So they literally would close their eyes when they walked in public places with women around, and they would bump into things and crash into things and injure themselves, all in this legalistic attempt to avoid the temptation to sin. See, when we add rules to the Bible, sometimes it's helpful to protect ourselves, but then we also enforce that on other people. And say, now you have to do this as well, or else you have sinned, because we all have to protect ourselves from temptation. Eve is adding to God's word, and in so, sinning. Now the serpent makes his move. Verse 4, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil you won't die. The serpent accuses God of lying. God has lied to you. You won't die. In fact, nothing bad will happen. Only good things will happen if you eat that fruit. God is holding back. He knows that if you eat that fruit, there'll be a blessing for you. There'll be something that you will be able to receive that he wants to hold only for himself. So eat it so that you can show him and you can become just like him. It's ironic Because the serpent claimed that eating the fruit would make the humans like God when the humans were already like God. They were made in God's image. And sometimes, you know what sin does? Is it tempts us to take something in an inappropriate way that's already ours if we trust God to provide it. We are already made in the image of God. There's nothing in this world that we can grab onto and we can take for ourselves that can make us more like God. God has already made us in his image. Specifically, the serpent promised that eating the fruit would give the humans a special kind of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. On the one hand, I think it's pretty self-explanatory what that is. It's the ability to discern between what's right and what's wrong, to know what's good and bad. And perhaps at this stage in history, there was a profound innocence of Adam and Eve. They just didn't have the categories for good and bad at the time. But on a deeper level, I think the knowledge of good and evil represents something more profound. It represents the quest for knowledge apart from God's provision. Specifically, the ability to define what is good and evil on our own terms. No need to consult God. No need to trust God. No need to submit to God. We can decide what's good ourselves. It's the height of human arrogance, taking a position that only God can fill. 
the one who called creation good, is the only one who can tell us what is truly good for us. Verse 6 says, The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. The new knowledge didn't lead them to the enjoyment of the good, but being confronted by the evil. Their new knowledge opened their eyes to their nakedness, a recognition of their vulnerability and their exposure because of sin. The fruit didn't make them more like God. It actually made them more aware that they weren't like each other. And in their shame, they hid from each other and hid from God. Next week, we're going to continue in verse 8 and beyond to see how God comes and interacts and deals with this situation. But for now, I want to look at what this story is telling us about our own nature and the nature of sin and temptation itself. No part of the Genesis story makes better sense of our story than than what happens here. This story reveals so much about our nature. It reveals the problems with our quest for the good life apart from God's provision. It's an expose on our rebellious hearts, thinking that we know best, thinking that we have the right and the ability to define good and evil. Let's look at a couple of things. Number one, the nature of temptation. It's an important topic to understand. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Meaning, we can learn from the experience of others who face temptation, who have fallen to temptation, who have overcome temptation. We can learn from each other, and we can learn from Adam and Eve. Also, 1 Corinthians 2 encourages us to be aware of Satan's schemes so that we can be prepared to ward him off, and he won't outsmart us. So let's look at the nature of this temptation as a way to dissect how it may be working in our own lives. The first thing the serpent did when tempting Eve was to isolate her. He isolated her from community. He didn't speak to the couple. He just spoke to Eve. We're told that Adam was close by, which means that he may have overheard all this and just did nothing, and that showed weakness on his part, not supporting his wife and partner. But he Satan isolated Eve and spoke only to her because Satan knew a principle that it is much easier to pick off a single animal than to try to pull it out from the herd. Remember, the only thing in creation that God said wasn't good was for humans to be alone. Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. The word man is Adam. That's where we get the name Adam. It's not just referring to the male human. It's also referring to the female human. It's not good for her to be alone either. God created human community for a purpose so they can support one another and help one another. And here's one example as to why. When we are alone, we are more susceptible to deceit. We are made to be in community. That's one of the reasons why we as a church intentionally practice Christian community. We gather together on Sundays for fellowship and worship and the teaching of the word. We have weekday connect groups and other ministries where we get people together because we need each other. In our church's purpose statement, we say we are helping each other follow Jesus. Because following Jesus is not a solo endeavor. 
It does require independent action, but it is not meant to be done independently. We need each other, and we need to help each other. Adam could have helped Eve, but he didn't. Eve could have asked Adam for help, but she didn't. She was isolated in her temptation. The second thing the serpent did was question God's goodness. Is God trying to keep you from experiencing all that life has to offer? Why would he hold out on you? He must have some sort of bad intentions in this situation. At the heart of sin is the belief that God is not as good as he claims to be. When we're tempted to sin, when we give in to sin, we're making an assumption that God is not as good as he claims to be. What he said is not going to lead to my good as much as disobeying what he said will lead to my good. So much of our sin starts with that assumption. God's holding back on me. If I, if I would only disobey him, I could get, get something good that he refuses to give me. Think about the situation in the garden. God had said, eat freely from every single tree, just not this one. Trust me, if you do, it will harm you. Everything else is open for you. There might have been millions of trees. There might have been 10 trees. But they were given liberty to eat freely from every single tree except this one where God asked them to trust him. We look at a story like this and we will ask a question like, well, why did God even put the tree in the garden in the first place? And you know what that is? It's a very serpenty question. Because behind that question is an assumption that God had some sort of ill intent, that God was unwise, that God was not good in him choosing to put that tree in the garden. But that's the point. See, the serpent comes, Satan comes to bring temptation, but God will always test. God brings tests into our lives to give us the opportunity to learn to trust him and grow closer to him because that's the whole goal of life. Literally, the definition of eternal life is intimacy with God. And you grow in intimacy by growing in trust and closeness and relationship. And the tests the Lord allows in our life help us learn to trust him more deeply. Jesus himself said in John 17, 3, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent on earth. Eternal life is knowing God. God's desire was to bring life in the garden, not death. Satan's desire was to bring death. Sin means to think God is holding out on us and his instructions to us are too burdensome or possibly ill-intended. But God asks us to do things that will increase our trust, improve our relationship, and lead to greater life. God is not holding back on you. God is not trying to keep you from blessing and goodness. He's provided all the other trees. Stop focusing on the ones that he says no to and focus on his provision because he's good. The third thing the serpent did was twist God's word. Did God really say you can't eat any fruit? He knew that God, what God had said, but he's trying to sow seeds of doubt. Satan did the same thing in the wilderness when he tempted Jesus. He said, if you really are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now think about that. In context, the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is right after his baptism where a voice from the clouds say, this is my son. 
And then Satan goes, if you're the son. He's just trying to create that little bit of doubt in order to stick the knife in. Satan even quoted scripture in the temptation, Psalm 91. He didn't even misquote it. He just misapplied it and quoted it out of context. There are a lot of messages in the world that sound kind of like God, that sound kind of like the scriptures, that sound kind of true. Teachers and preachers who will even use Bible verses, but they'll merely twist them for their own selfish and misleading purposes. It's an old game invented by that old serpent devil. Sometimes our temptation is to do or believe something that isn't completely wrong. It even looks and sounds good, but it's just a twisted version of what's actually good and true. Beware the devil's schemes. He will isolate you. He'll cast doubt on God's goodness. He'll twist God's word all to destroy your life. Secondly, what we see in this passage is the human quest for wisdom. The human quest for wisdom. The temptation of Eve highlights this fundamental element of human nature. We are on a quest for wisdom. The serpent told Eve that the fruit would give her new knowledge. When Eve looked at the fruit, we're told she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Humanity has an insatiable desire for knowledge and wisdom. And guess what? That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's how we're made. God designed us to be seekers and to discover and to learn and grow. He made a universe that actually has laws within it so that we could actually create tools for measurement and testing and learn about the universe God created and learn about the God behind it all. The whole scientific process was birthed out of a Christian worldview saying this universe is predictable because God made it with laws. That's how God designed us, and it's a good thing to seek knowledge and wisdom. In fact, Adam and Eve had been given a big job to be God's image bearers, to be vice regents and rulers, to govern this world. What would they need to accomplish that job? Wisdom, knowledge. This is exactly what they needed in order to fulfill the task God had given them. But they were supposed to trust God for that wisdom and knowledge. Not to seek it on their own. Not to get it by their own way. Not to make, create shortcuts around God's provision, but to trust in God's provision and wait for his timing. Eating the fruit represented the pursuit of wisdom apart from God. It represented the human quest for knowledge outside of God's provision. The Bible tells us to seek wisdom, but it also tells us that wisdom comes from God. The Bible tells us to seek knowledge, but it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. When we don't trust God, we start to decide what is right in our own eyes, which doesn't always line up with what's right in the eyes of the Lord. This is one of the themes of the book of Judges. If you flip forward a bunch of books in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of crazy things that are happening as Israel is being established as a nation in the promised land. And the final line of the book of Judges is haunting. It's, it goes like this. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Just like Eve. She did what was right in her own, in her own eyes. The fruit looked like it would give her wisdom. Listen again to the description of Eve eating the fruit. Chapter 3, verse 6. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious. 
and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She saw, she looked, and then she took, took it for herself. She did what was right in her own eyes. Here's a little tip when you read Genesis. Talked to you several times about how many hyperlinks there are in the Bible, especially in Genesis, but in other places as well. Anytime you see these words, saw and took together, you're about to see something bad happen. It's kind of a clue that the author is giving you. It's like, it's like ominous music in the movie telling you that the bad guy's about to do something nasty. He saw, he took, and you'll see that it's a, it's a fall narrative. It's a sin narrative that the book is about to share. Eve saw with her eyes that it looked good, so she took and she ate. This temptation remains one of the primary temptations of our time. Listen, as you, as you remove God from the, the equation, as soon as we take God out, what happens? Whose will is most powerful in the world? It's the human will. As soon as, we, as soon as we decide that God's will doesn't matter, that God's word doesn't matter, it's our will and our word that becomes the greatest. And we put ourselves in the position of God. And so therefore, we think we have the right and the ability to decide what's good. It's our responsibility. We're, we're in charge around here. We're going to decide what's good. Sometimes people say like, if I were Eve or if I were Adam, I wouldn't have fallen for it. I wouldn't have sinned in the garden. Everything would still be perfect today because I would have overcome this temptation. It's just a, it's just a piece of fruit. I don't even like fruit. I wouldn't have eaten it. But Adam and Eve represent each one of us. Their sin is our sin. We have all taken, we have all looked, we have all seen, we have all taken it and rejected God's provision, lacking trust in him and eaten the forbidden fruit. We are under the assumption that we have the ability and the right to determine what's good for ourselves. We assume that enough people, if enough people agree, you know, I'm all for democracy, but this is kind of the assumption. If enough people agree that something's good, it must be good. Because who's in charge around here? We are. So it must be good. All these people agree. We've done studies. We have academic papers. We have experts who have told us this is good. So therefore, we've all decided, bang the gavel, it's good. But sometimes, God disagrees. And he says, you're seeking knowledge and wisdom apart from me and it's leading to your death. This is the case with, for example, all the major bioethical challenges and issues of our day. When it comes to things like the pro-choice movement, when it comes to issues of gender and sexuality, we assume that as humans, we have the right and the ability to decide what's good apart from God, to disagree with God, to say that God is dated and, and his way and what he says in the scriptures is wrong or just out of touch. But to think we have the right to determine what's good is the height of human arrogance. Only God can determine that. Every time we step outside of God's design and decide what's good in our own eyes, we take and eat the fruit we claim divinity for ourselves. The temptation of the serpent is to decide what's right on our own. But the test of God is to trust in his word even when our eyes tell us something different in the moment. Not just to take and eat what we see, but to ask God to provide his own wisdom and to be content with what he tells us. 
It's not just with bioethical issues. It happens in the church too. It happens when we ignore or trivialize or minimize the teachings of Jesus. We decide what's good for us. Because times have changed. Some things Jesus said are just hard or awkward and they just don't work for my lifestyle. Are you telling me I'm supposed to forgive my enemies? That doesn't seem good. The question is, do you trust God? Are you telling me I'm supposed to give to the poor and take care of them? Shouldn't they work for themselves? The question is, do you trust God? Are you really telling me I'm supposed to give a percentage of my income to support the ministry of the church? Seems like a lot. The question is, do you trust God? Are you telling me I'm supposed to be in church once a week? That's a lot of days. Well, every other tree in the garden is yours. Do you trust God? I'm supposed to limit my sexual desires to one specific kind of relationship? It seems very narrow. The question is, do you trust God? Or are you going to do what's right in your own eyes? And take and eat the fruit. I know I'm getting personal. But did you expect me to preach on Genesis 3 without trying to highlight our own sin? You and I are Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve represent all of humanity. We would have made the same mistake in the garden. We make the same mistake by trusting in our own wisdom, by seeing and deciding for ourselves what is good and eating the same proverbial fruit all the time. We're supposed to see our own propensity to sin in this story. We're supposed to feel the weight in it, to recognize that we're all sinners. We've all rejected God and done what's right in our own eyes and been alienated from him. But guess what? Despite what we often think, God is good. And he continues to prove his goodness to us over and over again, even in ways that we certainly did not deserve. This is the good news of God. Even though we rejected God, he didn't reject us. Even though we didn't trust God, he has not forsaken us. Even though we refuse to believe that God is good, he has proven his goodness to us by sending his son Jesus into the world. He's called the last Adam, the last human, meaning he's the ultimate human, the one who is as human as anyone could ever be to show us what it's like and also to represent us before God once again and say, this is what humanity is. Accept them into your kingdom through me. He went up against the evil serpent and did not succumb to the temptation. Then he sacrificed himself in order to forgive us of sin and give us a righteous standing before God. We sinned at the tree, and Jesus came to be crucified on a tree to take that sin away. God asked us to trust him with one thing, and we couldn't do it, but Jesus trusted God with everything so that we could be redeemed. And get this, it was a meal that led us astray, but it was also a meal at which Jesus announced our return to grace. Eve took the fruit and ate it, and the world was destroyed. And we found ourselves bound up in the slavery, sin, and death, and then Jesus sitting down with his disciples at the Passover meal, a meal that represented liberty from the slavery and death of Egypt. And he sat down and he said this in Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Jesus took some bread, 
and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this, eat it, for this is my body. You see that? You see how Jesus redeemed us? Look at this. See this? Take this. Eat this. Stop looking and taking and eating whatever you find. Here's the provision of God. Here's the provision of God. An act of trust. God's provision. God was always going to provide. God was going to give Adam and Eve everything they would ever need to accomplish their divine purpose. And God will give you everything accomplish his purposes in your life as well. If you'll only trust him, you'll only be patient for his provision, not just looking and taking and eating whatever you find, trusting in Jesus, trusting him when he says, look at this, take this, eat this. This is what I've done for you. 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. You want wisdom? It's found in Christ, in his provision, in his broken body, in his crucifixion. It's found in his blood spilled. It's found in his body broken and hung on the cross for us. He's the wisdom we need. He says, this is my body. He provided his own self as a sacrifice to bear the sins of the world. Take it. Eat it. And receive his life. Let me summarize my thoughts for you today as we close. Number one, God is good. God is good. Do not doubt it. Temptation to doubt God's goodness is constant. He really is good. Number two, trust him. Trust him. Since God is good, you can trust him even when you don't always understand, even when your eyes are telling you something different. And trust him. So is there an area of your life today where you're not trusting him? Where you are doing what's right in your own eyes instead of doing what God has called you to do? It's time to repent of that sin and start trusting in God. He's provided forgiveness through Jesus as you take and eat his body and his blood. Begin to start trusting in his goodness again. In a moment, we're going to accept Jesus' invitation, take and eat. These symbols that we have, these little cups with the wafer and the juice in them, they represent that meal that Jesus had with his disciples where he said, look at this. Take my body, take my blood, eat and drink. This is your redemption. It's a new covenant, a new deal to fix everything that happened in the garden and lead you to eternal life. But what we're told to do in the New Testament is to spend a moment examining ourselves before so what we're going to do, the band's going to start to play a song, and I want to invite you, as we've done recently, to come. There's a couple tables up in the balcony as well, but you can come and find a table here. But just come when you're ready. Don't rush. Spend a moment reflecting, asking God, is there, is there somewhere in my life where I'm not trusting you and your goodness? Ask for forgiveness. Ask for the strength to trust him. And then come grab your stuff. Go back to your seats. And once everybody has what they need, we'll go through it together. Let's pray as you prepare for that. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your goodness. 
so grateful that you are good. And Lord, we confess that often we doubt your goodness. Often we assume that the intentions behind your commands and the, the intentions behind your word are not right. But God, help us in our unbelief. Help us to trust you. Lord, protect us from the temptations of the enemy who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And Lord, we declare that you are good and what you say is good. And we pray, Lord, that you would sustain us, keep us, protect us, and preserve us in that goodness. And for the times where we have failed, Lord, thank you that there is forgiveness and redemption. And that was purchased for us on the cross by Jesus. Lord, we failed you at a meal in the garden. Look, take, and eat. And so today as we take this bread and we eat it, as we take this grape juice and we drink it more, I pray that it would be more than just a couple calories in a cup. But it would represent for us our redemption and strengthen and nourish us for what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, come.
some bread and blessed it. And he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. If eating the fruit represented our lack of trust in God's provision and our desire to do what was right in our own eyes, eating the body of Christ represents our redemption and our trust in him for his provision, which came from his own self. That's how good he is. Let's take the bread together. faith and trust in you and your provision. In Jesus' name. He took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it. This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. This is the forgiveness of your sins. and we drink, Lord Jesus. We declare your death until you come. For once again in the kingdom of heaven, we will feast together. We will enjoy a renewed garden, new heavens, a new earth, full of the peace and joy and love that you have in store for us. Thank you for your redemption. As we go today, Lord Jesus, we pray that you fill us with faith, Give us trust to follow you each and every moment this week. Help us to honor you with our decisions. Strengthen us to overcome temptation. Forgive us when we fail, Lord Jesus. And help us to walk with you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all the forgiven said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.